You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Hey, less than two weeks until Christmas, guys, which means uh, it's not too early to complete your shopping, especially with the playoffs so wide open. So, Bruce, man, you're in Dallas where the Cowboys are still alive for the playoffs. You got something you want to give them? Sure. I've been shopping for a playmaking wide receiver for the Cowboys, but the shelves are pretty empty this time of year. <laughs> yes, they are. Ron, uh, welcome back to New England. Uh, good to be out of that hot Miami sun, right? And, and those cold New England handshakes. Yeah, you're right. A little too hot for Tom Brady, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Melted like a dish of ice cream on the veranda. Ow. <laughs> Seven and nine down there. Hey, you're not the guy who asked about the Patriots looking past Miami to Pittsburgh, are you? <laughs> no, that wasn't me. Ouch, that, that Good reception, that question. Good, guy. Yeah, good Yikes. reception. Cold stare, I like that. Okay, um, just wondering, Ron, um, you have something you want to give Tom, well, not so terrific on Monday night, or, or maybe the rest of the AFC? Oh, I got a, 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 clearly he needed a, a, a new box of deflated footballs because the ones he was throwing weren't going where he sent them. <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that uh, Landry in the end zone who was trying to deflate footballs? Jarvis Landry. They said, what are you doing? I'm deflating a football. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, oh, maybe he gave it to Tom Brady. Well, I know what we're going to get for today's listeners, guys. We have two cornerbacks who are among the 27 semifinalists for the Hall's class of 2018. That's Ty Law and Everson Walls. We also have former Colts PR director, Craig Kelly, good friend of ours, to talk about the passing of former coach Ron Meyer. And we'll sit down with the newest Hall of Fame voter, that'd be Larry Michael, the voice of the Washington Redskins. Goose, um, we still have a couple of days to complete our Hall of Fame ballot. I think it's due on Friday. Are you finished? Yes, sir. And as always, my ballot is defense heavy. 56% of all players in Canton played offense. Only 28% played defense. 49% of the modern era players played offense. 33% played defense. We need more defensive players with busts, and my balance always reflects that. Well, there's there's always a surprise with the voting. So, who's your surprise for the class of 2018 finalists, guys? Everson Walls. He's waited 25 years to finally get into the room to be discussed, and his case is a strong one. Dallas guy figures. Uh, Richard Seymour coming out of the no coming out of the no stats bin to get into the final fifty. Figures. But he ain't getting into the Hall of Fame this year. <laughs> Well, we'll have more on the Hall of Fame class of 2018 voting because the votes are not all in. They should be, but they're not. But we're out for this break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, uh, before we get to the Hall's class of 2018 candidates, I want to get to the news of the week, and that's the season ending injury, of course, to Philadelphia quarterback Carson Wentz. He suffered a torn ACL in last weekend's defeat of the Rams, and the timing couldn't be worse. I mean, there are still three games left, and the Vikings, Panthers, Rams, Saints, you name it, what, Atlanta, maybe Seattle, they're all coming after the Eagles. So, Goose, what does this do with the NFC playoff picture? Hello, Minnesota Vikings, who now have a realistic shot of becoming the first team to play a Super Bowl on its home field. You know, defense wins championships, and the Vikings have the only unit in the NFL that ranks the top five across the board in defense, run defense, pass defense, and scoring defense. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not so sold on, on that the Eagles are dead, although in Philadelphia they're already digging a hole in the ground, you know, because that's <laughs> what they do in Philadelphia. Uh you know, Foles is a decent backup quarterback, better than most teams have. 
Uh, I think he, as long as he stays within himself, they have a lot of other tools on offense and defense. Uh, I, I still think they're going to be formidable uh, and, and difficult for everybody else. Stays within himself. What does that mean? Uh, don't start thinking you're Carson Wentz <laughs> because you'll end up looking like Johnny Carson. <laughs> okay, well, as you guys know, we deal with history on this program, and there's a history of backup quarterbacks taking over for injured starters, leading their teams to Super Bowls. Ron, of course, you've got Tom Brady, New England. There's Jeff Hostetler. <laughs> Tom, terrific. Oh, not so terrific on Monday. Jeff Hostetler with the Giants and Earl Morrill. Colts, Dolphins, they're examples. But Brady Morrill got a jump on things early. Jeff Hostetler, however, jumped in the 14th game of the 1990 season after Phil Simms broke his foot, and he never lost. So, Ron, how should Eagles fans like Nick Foles' chance of pulling a Jeff Hostetler and taking them to Minneapolis in February? Well, you know, if he had the Giants' defense, uh, <laughs> you know, that Ostetler had, I'd yeah. say the chances are a little bit better, you know. Uh, uh, or, you know, if he was uh, starts off and has this sort of dominating performances that Earl Morrill had for a long time, uh, during, especially that year in Baltimore where he just went crazy and was player of the year. Yep. Uh, you know, it's hard to project and expect, you know, you know that. Uh, but, I, but I do think that he's a pretty capable guy. Uh, and, and maybe that's all they need at this point. Um, the, the problem is, when I look at it, I see those 33 Carson Wentz touchdown passes. Right. And that's had a lot to do with a lot of what they've been doing. So I don't see any, I don't see any reason to think that Foles has that part in him. Well, all is certainly not lost. You know, earlier in this decade, Foles spent part of three seasons as the starting quarterback of the Eagles. and compiled a 15-9 record. He had... 400-yard passing games against Arizona, Minnesota, and Oakland in his career. He threw for seven touchdowns against Ron's Raiders. If you can protect Foles, you can win with Foles. Hey, somebody pointed out to me, and rightly so, he's the backup quarterback, which means he's not as good as Carson Wentz. He's a backup. And also, that playoff game that they got to, one and done. One and done with Nick Foles. That was against New Orleans at home. Hey, one other question on the subject, guys. Wentz was your MVP leader last month. So what does this do to his candidacy and really all the others? I mean, in one weekend, you had Wentz going down for the year, Brady unable to convert a third down for the first time in his career, and Russell Wilson throwing three interceptions. So, Goose, what does this do to the leaderboard? Well, this could be an, a think-outside-the-box year, and right now I'm thinking outside the box. I'm thinking Antonio Brown. Oh, wow. A wide receiver has never been an NFL MVP, but there is no one in the NFL playing his position right now better than Antonio Brown is playing his. Wow. I'm stunned. Me too. Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, look, if the uh, uh, if the Rams go a long way, I think Todd Gurley has a lot yeah, to do with guy. it. Yeah, he'd you be know, my guy. He'd be my quarterback guys. You yeah. quarterback guys. No, I mean, I, I think that the running back could get it. You know, there's nobody yeah. really on defense that's going to get it, I don't think. Um, uh, and with the uh, logical suspects at quarterback uh, either eliminated or Brady's yeah. not going to get it because Brady's not going to get it. Uh, you know, uh, I think the voters look at Brady and say, you know, he's got the supermodel wife, he's got the house in Costa Rica, he's got the house in California, he's got the cars, the money, the Bugattis, and everything else. He's got the Screw you, you're not most valuable player. Yeah, right. That's right. I agree with you. Victim of his own success. Can't really hey, blame uh, them. Um, hey, uh, quick, guys, on to the class of 2018 candidates. Goose, been a hard and concerted push for Everson Walls this week with letters of support. I mean, we're going to visit with him later on in the show, in fact, later on in this hour, so I'll ask you, will those recommendations have an impact, and, and does he make the cut? Well, I don't put much stock in the letters. I do my own homework and my own research on candidates, and I've got a pretty good, solid pecking order at each position. 
and not just 70 players on the ballot. Uh, I, I can probably go 15, 20 deep. You know, you, you spend a half century watching football, you get a decent feel for who belongs and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a good chance he makes this um, final 15. Now, it's going to be tough when he gets to 15, but I think, he, I, I think there's a good chance he'll be in that 15. Ronnie, um, I, I speak of those letters of support. We get them right. all the time, as you know. Do you, do you think they actually have an impact on you or, or other voters? Uh, not very much on me. I mean, I, I do look at most of them. If someone's going to take the time to write something, I try to take a look at it. I, I pretty quickly dismiss players because, uh, you know, I, I don't quite know what's motivating any of those guys, you know. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so I don't put much weight on that. Uh, what I look for is, is some little nugget about a guy that, that I didn't know was uh, – or hadn't heard of, and then I try to research that to, fee- to find out if it's actually true or fake news, as somebody once said. <laughs> uh, and and sometimes it's the latter, or at least incorrect news. Uh, but I don't put a lot of a uh, lot of store in those those kinds of letters. Okay, uh, quick guys. Everson's never been a finalist, as we know, and he's in the last year of eligibility as a modern era candidate. But Carl Mecklenburg, Denver's Carl Mecklenburg, who's been a seven-time semifinalist, he's never been a finalist either, and, and he's in his nineteenth year of eligibility. Goose, why isn't anyone talking about him? Well, I voted for him in my final 15. I don't need anyone talking up Carl Mecklenburg to, to be convinced his case deserves to be heard. I already know he belongs to the room, and I have no problem voting him a bust if it comes to that. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. He just hasn't caught fire. You know, you know he didn't play in New York, so maybe that's part, part of it. Um, uh, yeah, it's an odd That's a, it's an, I don't have an answer really to that question. It's a good question because uh, it would seem that the same rules would apply but they haven't. Okay, when I hear that sound, I think of someone who filled out his ballot this week on our website, Talk of Fame Network. Yep, and that someone is our Ron Borges, who I bet has an opinion on wide receiver and Hall of Fame candidate. And first ballot choice, maybe, huh? Randy Moss. Ron, you want to tell us about it? Sure. Well, you know, uh, is Randy Moss a first ballot Hall of Famer? Well, that depends on how you look at things. Uh, in the opinion of some, there are Pro Football Hall of Famous, and then there are First Ballot Hall of Famous, an exclusive list within an exclusive club. Of the 310 selectees, 97 were, uh, were First Ballot selections, with 17 of those uh, being members of the original class. So basically 31.29% of all enshrinees go in on the First Ballot. Moss is now in his first year of eligibility, and there are some who insist he's a slam-dunk First Ballot selection, to which I say, oh, really? Tell that to Otto Graham, not Paul Brown, not. Pete Rozelle, not. Gooseman's Night Train Lane, not. We could go on. <laughs> Ken Stabler, not. Uh, so being a slam dunk is a relative term, as Randy Moss may soon find out. What's not debatable are his numbers. He retired with 982 catches, 15,292 yards, 156 touchdowns, and a yards per catch average of 15.6. He's second all-time in touchdowns, third in yards, 15th in receptions, uh, and is second with 10 Uh, 1,000-yard seasons and 64 uh, 100-yard gains. He also holds a single-season touchdown reception record for both a rookie and a non-rookie at 17 and 23. He was a six-time Pro Bowl selection, four-time All-Pro, All-Decade, on and on. We could go on forever. Um, The fact of the matter is his numbers argue clearly that he's a Hall of Famer. But is he a first-ballot Hall of Famer? That, of course, is a different matter. As Terrell Owens found out, who was not a first ballot Hall of Famer, not a second ballot, he may not be a 20th ballot Hall of Famer, the way things are going for him, even though his numbers are pretty damn close to Randy Moss's. So what kept Owens out? Well, the voters felt that uh, things he did in the locker room, his disruptive nature, uh, was a problem. Well, 
Randy Moss didn't have necessarily that disruptive nature, but he was traded by every team uh, that he was ever on. Why? Because he, as he once famously put it, I play when I want to play. So I would ask you gentlemen this. Is a first ballot Hall of Famer a player who publicly admits, I play when I want to play? That's the question we have to answer. How do you answer it? For me, the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no. with you. And and if you ask Jerry Rice, which I did, the answer is no. Right. Uh, well, I have no doubt he gets in, Ron. But like you, I just wonder when. Of course, that's something I never question when our producer tells us to go to commercial. And he's telling us right now. So coming up, it's going to be the life and death of Ron Meyer. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is Les Snead, General Manager of the Los Angeles Rams, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, I don't know if you saw it, but former coach Ron Meyer, whom Ron covered in New England, passed away last week at the age of 76. He was a successful head coach and a guy who led... The Pony Express to a 10-1 season at SMU in 1981. Yeah, I, I know about what happened there. But uh, he was also someone who a year later was named NFL Coach of the Year in New England. But he was also a character involved in the 1982 famed snowplow game in Foxborough. And someone who Ron, at least has told us, once instructed players and staff to, quote, Simonize their watches, unquote. Now, Ron knows a lot about him, but not as much as our next guest, and that would be former Colts PR director Craig Kelly, a dear friend of ours, and someone who saw Ron every day, and that would be Ron Meyer when he was coaching the Colts. Craig, thanks for joining us. Hey, Clark, uh, Ron, and Rick, thank you for having me on. Ron Meyer was, was really a character and, and certainly carved a niche in uh, Colts history, but was a pretty good football coach on top of that. But Ron had a had a zest for living, a zeal for the game, and a passion for it. He brought a lot of fun to everything that he did, and he brought a lot of fun to Colts football. Hey, Craig, when you first heard of Ron's death last week, what flashed through your head? I mean, was it a game, an incident, a conversation, what? You know what? I I joined the Colts in 85 as the number two PR guy, and Ron joined us near the end of the 86 season. And then the person over me left and joined another team, and I was promoted. And what really stuck with me was uh, Ron was, was, was really supportive of a young PR director. And I really enjoyed my relationship. I was 27 years old, one of the youngest PR directors in the league. I had a, a pretty good grounding with some previous bosses, but Ron was the kind of guy. He was one of the first ones that came to my office and said, hey, man, looking forward to working with you. You know, there's two kinds of PR guys. One's, you know, some guys let things come to them. Other guys take more active roles and seek uh, leadership in the organization. I like people that seek their own level and find it. I didn't really need a pep talk, but that was something he said right off the bat that meshed with uh, how my father and some of my previous bosses raised me. I could tell right then and there I'd have a great relationship with him. And you guys know from, from being around the league as long as you were, a PR director and a head coach have a pretty unique relationship. They're kind of like your big brother. They aren't your father because in, in, in sports terms, your father is pretty much the owner of your football team. But you're going to see this guy in every emotion, you're going to see him when things are high. You're going to see where things are low. You'll cancel him on different things. Ron was just always a really, really good guy to work with, uh, with the PR guy, with the trainer, with the equipment person. And I just really, when I heard that, I was sad because I did keep in touch with him through the years. Uh, of all things, every time I reached him, he was on the golf course, which, which could have been uh, described as a natural habitat. But when he passed, I just, just really thought of the fun times we had together. Craig, let me take you back to 1986. The Colts were deep in a, into a miserable season, losing their first 13 games. 
And they fire Rod Dalhauer, brought in Ron Meyer. He promptly wins the last three games of the season. Then went out and won the AFC East the following season. So what was the Ron Meyer magic in Indianapolis? Well, you know, he he, he started with, uh, A, the, the two teams he worked with, the, with the Patriots when he joined them in, in 82. They'd been 2-14 and 14 the year before. And then they went to the playoffs in a 5-4 and strike-shortened year. We were 0-13. What happened that year is, is uh, you know, we, we traded for Gary Hogaboom. He got hurt in Week 2, and we had to go with a rookie quarterback in Jack Trudeau. We just didn't have, uh, you know, we, 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 we started 0-13. There was a, a time in Week 7 we could have won. There were a couple times we were close. We just couldn't get over the hump. Rod just came in with a, a, a positive energy. Um, you know, Frank Cush didn't survive his first year in Indianapolis when we'd moved. Uh, he left before the season was over. Rod Dauhauer came in and, and probably didn't have the, the vibrant presence that, 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 you know, and not that Rod couldn't have been a good head coach, but didn't have the vibrant presence. But Rod just came in and, and gave us, uh, I think, his very first talk to the team in Atlanta. We're 0-13, and, and they're, I think, 6-6-1. Six, six and one. He said, you know what, they're like uh, a dog that's eaten each but hasn't passed the pit. He goes, they're probably scared of us. They have to pass a pit to, to, to beat us and just, just hang in there and stay together and play hard. He gave them a pep talk, and, and we won. And then we beat Buffalo the week after that and beat the Raiders, and we were off and running. It's, you know, we, we'd only won nine of our 45 games in Indianapolis before he got there. We won 12 as the first 18 with us. So, you know, he was just an energetic guy. Um, I, mean, I talked to Bill Brooks, who I think Ron Borges knows pretty well sure. from, from BU days. Um, you know, Bill said, you know, Ron could reach inside the helmet and, 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 and get inside a guy's head and, and motivate. Uh, he, he didn't coach the number on the, on the jersey, coach the person inside it. And, you know, that's not unique to Ron. A lot of coaches are that way. But, again, you know, Ron was, was kind of passed off as, a, as a, uh, a motivator. But he was an ex in those guys as well. Was he Bill Walsh who created a system? No. But, but uh, he, just, he just knew a way to, 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 to get inside and, and to reach people. And he just gave us a shot of confidence and a little bit of vibrancy that we really needed at the time. Ron, we're going to pass the pit to you. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, I have a million, uh, and I'm sure you do, Craig. <laughs> so I'll give you my favorite uh, Ron Meyerism, uh, of, which was when he walked in one day and uh, the defense wasn't doing that well. And I said, you know, what are you, well, you, know, what are you want, trying to accomplish with your defense? And he looked at me and he said, I want my defense to be a rolling ball of butcher knives. And <laughs> I just fell on the floor. I never heard such a thing. What's what's the what, what did he did you hear him say that you found just fall on the floor laughing because he seemed to say those kind of things all the time. Uh, we had a player who injured a peck one year, a guy who ended up not ever making the team. But you know, his turning turning camps back in that era were about six weeks long compared to three weeks like they are now. And this kid didn't practice all during training camp and. He said that, uh, my gosh, I've seen soldiers come back from war faster than this. <laughs> but I think my all-time favorite, and, and I, I kind of I read some other stories about Ron. I used this line at CNN, which, which evidently was one that he had honed through the years. But my very, very favorite was, was uh, when he announced Jeff George was going to start, and the media reacted like it was just the biggest news, and they were surprised when they, really, they knew this was the plan all along. And 
when he mentioned Jeff George was going to start and the media react, he goes, oh, come on, guys. It's, it's not like I'm Moses coming off Mount Sinai with the tabloids. That one, that one to me was, <laughs> was, was the all-time best. But, uh, was he talking you know, about the, the poster of the Daily News? <laughs> yogiisms and, and Ron had some Ronisms, but you know what? There was an intelligence to Ron. But again, he, he put place the value on dealing with people, and that included the media. And, you know, sometimes it, it, in today's media culture, it would have really been interesting to see how Ron would have handled it. I think he would have found a way to adapt to social media and everything else. But back, that was a different era in the mid-'80s and late-'80s where, where uh, the relationships really took precedence. And I think each of you guys remember that period very well. Love that period. It's, uh, I wish it was more like that. You know, I've never seen a guy get fired. And, and of course, you saw him get fired, too. I wonder how he handled it. Because when he was here and he got fired, uh, when it was, oh, you know, you know how controversial it was, Craig. And I, and I said to him, the, the, the day he got fired, I said, um, so how are you feeling now? And he said, everything's the same as it was yesterday, except for one thing. Yesterday I was a Ronald Reagan fan, and today I'm a Walter Mondale fan. <laughs> 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 he, he had a great grip on things. I, I, I kind of knew a little bit in advance what was coming, and I, I kind of laid low that, that morning knowing that at a certain time he was going to get the news. And um, sure enough, he, he came to, to, to my office and, and told me, and I, I, I was, hey, I was, I was disappointed because you, you always hate when coaches uh, don't make it. But, I, but on, a, on a personal level, that was a, that was a difficult one. And I, I ended up having four or five moments like that with coaches as my career progressed. But, you know, he just, uh, he just always had a great handle on things. And, again, he, uh, he always said he'd never in, inherited a warm bed with the football teams he took over. And there's, there's some truth to that. But, you know, he was 54 and 54 his career. He won with us. You know, we, you know he joined us in, in, at that point. You know, the Colts uh, didn't have much of a national profile. Without him, we probably couldn't have completed the Eric Dickerson trade. Um, you know, we weren't competing well in our division. I think we'd, we'd only won two out of 20-something games in our division. And when he came in, and we won like uh, 15 of our first 25. So he kind of got us going. Um, you know, he relied on the veterans. We ran the ball pretty well. We played some pretty good defense. Um, you know, one thing when the Dickerson trade happened, I was advancing. I was in New York, and it was a holiday. It was a Halloween weekend, and Eric went on with Jim Gray and announced his own trade, and my phone and the show the Meadowlands rang all night. It literally it didn't stop ringing until five in the morning, and you, know, you couldn't confirm what was going on. Uh, you know, Eric had flown in, taken his physical, and then off to New York with the team. And I, I had yet to meet Eric face to face. And uh, Ron calls. You know, the team gets in. I get I see Eric get off the plane, but I have to get back to the hotel before the team gets there. And we get to the hotel, and we we had a long enough production meeting, and still had about 20 minutes to go before we had a major news conference and he goes he calls and says get eric up in my room you come up we're going to go through questions and plays and so we strategized for a few minutes on the questions he goes all right we still got about 10 minutes left uh eric you're starting tomorrow let's go through some sets craig you're the full butt grab the pillow off the bed we're going to go through plays now you're, you're talking to a kid that never played past fourth grade and I'm Eric Dickerson's blocking back in a hotel suite with a pillow in his hand. So, you know, that's a, that's a memory that you'll cherish the rest of your life. If you ever ask Eric who his first blocking back was in Indianapolis, I bet you he says it's me. I've <laughs> it for years. But, you know, Ron always had a plan. And there was, there was a time in 88 where we had a 35-10 lead over Tampa Bay in the second half. And then all of a sudden they, they knew we were going to run the ball and, and try to run out the clock. And they got hot. And all of a sudden it's 35-31 and they have the ball again. So we, we get out of a very tough win. And we know that, again, it's, it's running the ball with Eric was a big thing. 
And uh, Ron came up with a plan for us to, in, in a game like that where we had the lead, we're going to come up with a, a surrogate offense. And, and uh, we started running the wishbone. I don't know if you guys remember that or not, but we ran the wishbone. We, we dug up a kid named Ricky Turner who'd played ball in, in Washington, and he was our wishbone quarterback as a, as a change-up kind of offense. And we, we ran it in 10 games. We went 8-2, and two, not as a, a full staple offense, but that was a way to, to get – some defenses off our back, but Yaron was always an idea guy. He wasn't afraid to try things. He would have a conviction. He'd act on it, and we'd take people along for the ride, and it was a pretty good ride with us. Greg Kelly, thanks so much for the time, and thanks for the ride and memories of Ron Meyer. Well, hey, he was he was fun. It's uh, that this league is just chock full of of uh, anecdotes and people through the years. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Great job. Hey guys, let's keep in touch. I'll do it anytime. You got it. Sounds good. That was former Indianapolis Colts PR director Craig Kelly, also former fullback Eric Dickerson. Up next, <laughs> it's Hall of Fame candidate Everson Walls. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Hey, this is Fred Taylor, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Everson Walls, has waited a long time for this moment. He's the only cornerback in NFL history to lead the NFL in interceptions three times, yet he's waited 25 years to become a candidate for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And now, well, now he's a semifinalist for the first time in this, his 20th and last year of eligibility as a modern era candidate. Everson, first of all, welcome back. And second, congratulations on reaching the semifinals. No, I sure do appreciate it, man. I, I could just die right now, and I'm good. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't, Don't do, do that, that. That's all I need. The <laughs> fact that you guys are calling me, that just means I'm, I, am a, I am a new man. I am, <laughs> I am better than I was before the phone call. How about that? Oh, I like that. <laughs> Harrison, how, how all of a sudden have you become a Hall of Fame candidate after all these years? You know, what have you done in the last 24 years to improve your stock in the Hall of Fame candidate? <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's like my dad said, I, I walked you down, okay? I had, to, <laughs> I had to walk down the process. It took me just as I planned, of course, my last year of eligibility. You know, I, I, I planned it just like that. You know, with me, it's all about timing. And I think my timing is perfect. <laughs> Obviously, now, 24 years is a long wait. Uh, how surprised were you, Everson, to finally become a semifinals in your last year of eligibility when you got the word? You know, I, I, I really <laughs> I was extremely surprised because I try not to think about this at all. You know, I've obviously this is not my first time uh, being nominated, but to make it to this point. So usually I'm out of it by now, and someone usually, you know, arbitrarily tells me, hey, man, you know, uh, good job, but, you know, you're out. You're outvoted once again, and, you know, you're watching somebody else put on those gold jackets. So, you know, this particular time I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised, and I think I think the – the hoopla around the whole thing is, is as exciting as anything. You know, it's gotten my family all excited. Uh, you know, my daughter, my the people at Grambling State University, everyone that always supported me. I, talk, I call them Team Walls. So everybody, Team Walls has gotten a lot, a lot more memberships uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks with this announcement. So, you know, you, you try to sit back and chill and just kind of like let it organically take place. But, you know, when you've got so many people pulling for you, 
especially your family, then, you know, you can't just sit back and be passive and idle about it. You got to, you know, you got to get in there and, and do your part. And, and, you know, if not for yourself, definitely for the people that uh, have been waiting a long time for this to happen. Hey, Everson, is, is Goose part of that team, Walls? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Goose is, Goose is like, uh, Goose is my, my Jason Garrett, okay? He's, he's <laughs> is that good or bad? I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, it, well, last year, the last few years, it's been pretty bad, but, you know. <laughs> Dak Prescott, Dak, when Dak, Dak Prescott came, you know how things got better? Well, here yeah. we go. You know, he's. I'm making my Dak Prescott. There you go. There we go. (laughs) We're speaking with Hall of Fame semifinalist Everson Walls on the Talk of Fame Network, and you find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And Everson, if you could show the voters a tape of one play, one play that best showcases Everson Walls as a Hall of Fame cornerback, what would it be? Wow, that's that's. uh, I was trying to think about that. I mean, you know, the fact that I've got more than one, that is kind of pretty cool. But uh, I think my most uh, athletic one would be uh, the night that Dorsett went 99 yards against the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, You know, just being able to uh, uh, catch it and and, and do a somersault uh, simultaneously without even touching the receiver who was supposed to, uh, who the ball was intended for. Just a simple curl route. She slips down, and of course, me, I'm, you know, I'm breaking on it. I'm looking for that pick. And uh, as he fell down, I was able to avoid him uh, physically and, and, and make the pick uh, while, while, while turning the slip. You know, that kind of stuff that, you know, as I explained it, you know, you guys should be like hooping and hollering right now. I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> Whoa. I, I, should be getting an, I should be getting an amen from the corner, you know? Amen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. That's legit stuff, man. That's yeah. big ball action right there, you know. <laughs> hey, Everson, what what would a gold jacket mean to you? You know, I, I think I kind of spoke on it earlier. It's, it's really not what it would mean to me. It really isn't. I mean, uh, when I first started playing this game, I didn't even know I'd be in the pros, first of all. I went to college just to get an education, and next thing you know, things just start developing and, and occurring. And, you know, it's, it's this... It's this 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 roller coaster that just keeps going, and really you're not even at the helm of it. You know, you're just a passenger. And so for this to happen, and for my my loved ones to just be uh, excited as they are, even up to this point, you know, I I I, I would probably be barely be able to contain myself because of the joy that that they are receiving. Uh, from and so we were able to go all the way. I'm sure every every member probably says the same thing. It's like, you know, it's the people around you that that makes you so excited about it. Everybody's like, "Wow, man, it's about time! It's about time!" You hear from people that you never knew even pulled for you or supported you. So it, it's really it would mean much more for them, uh, for them to be happy and and to to uh, not just get the load off of my back, but off of theirs as well. You know, I got a, I got a tweet from a, a minister in Virginia who said he wore twenty four his whole life because of Everson Walls, and he oh, that's, cool. play. that's why he's that's, playing football. Yeah, he said he said when he got to high school he had a chain, so he moved down to four. Well, you know, I I, uh, I just happened to be looking at Facebook today. I I, I went through all this stuff and I, I noticed I was hadn't answered a lot of things, and I'm like, man, because I still don't quite get Facebook, so I started going through all of these. <laughs> messaging the thing, and I saw a picture of, of a card collector. Uh, he took a picture at uh, 
uh, Von Miller's house. Uh, Von Miller's house, you know, Denver Broncos. Yeah. And in his house, in his his little little man cave, is a picture of me guarding West Chandler in the mud. Uh, I remember that game. Uh, and, uh, and I'm uh, like, man, see, that's the kind of stuff. You know, you don't think these young kids really remember. But, you know, it's not just a picture. It was like an article. He had he had the original article. Okay, so for you know, it, it you you never know how far you know your efforts reach, and for somebody like a Von Miller, hopefully maybe I influenced him one day, or you know he just loved the Cowboys themselves, and to be part of that whole thread, you know you you really can't you really you really can't exaggerate just how much that means to a person. You really can't. Well, Everson, speaking of coaches, uh, you played for an incredible array of legendary coaches, got Hall of Fame coaches, really, Eddie Robinson, Tom Landry, Bill Parcells, Belichick, Bill Belichick. How did each of them influence you as a player? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it all came uh, at the right time, in a timely fashion, because number one, when I first came to Grambling, you know, talking about Eddie Robinson and, and, and his influence on me, I would not even be able to articulate to you right now just you know, how I really felt, you know, listening to him every day. You know, he was a teacher. He was, he was that, 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 that inspiration, not just inspiration, but it, man, he, he made me grow up. You know, that was the most, that was the moments when I was the most influenced. I could have been influenced in any other way. And for, for me to be around him at 17 years old to 21, and just when I was really getting my confidence in being a black kid, you know, growing up in Dallas, going through all the stuff I had gone through, going, going through juvenile and not even knowing if I even wanted to be an athlete, period. Not even barely getting into college. So his timing was perfect. And he got me ready for Tom Landry, who was the disciplinarian. Uh, you know, the, the same things Rob talked about, you know, from an African-American standpoint, you know, I, I, had to, I had to exhibit that strength by coming to the Cowboys, you know, as a young man, just trying to make his way. You know, and then here comes uh, uh, a guy like Bill Parcells who just changed the whole script <laughs> all the way. I mean, I, you go from this stern, you go from two coaches who are extremely conservative and stern to a coach that, I don't know, man, he, he mixed, uh, he mixed, it was the way he, he played with your head. I always said about Parcells, he wanted everyone on his team to hate him together. And that's all that matters. As long as we were together, right? Ron as does the same we thing. Together, yeah, yeah, you know, in the same that's way. That's the same thing. You can come together in hatred, right? You can come together in hatred and be as strong as any other emotion, right? And I think, I think he knew that. And there was a motivator for us to stay together as a unit and to me that was uh, to me that was genius and I was able to look at it from afar because of me being there my first year I looked at Parcells differently than the teammates did because I was looking at it from the outside you know those guys were from the inside because they were already there they had been privy to this this, this philosophy and for me to kind of view it you know as a, as a newcomer I, I, I thought it was it was just genius genius the way he did it and of course, the transition was easy with, with Belichick, you know, coming from the same program, uh, him being the defensive coordinator who really, more than Parcells ever did, saw 
uh, my potential more than what I saw for myself. So I've been blessed uh, throughout my entire life for people able to see something in me that, that I may not necessarily see in myself. I, I, I may have wished it, you know, like, you know how it is. You, 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 you want that, that, that uh, you want to have that kind of ambition. But I always had somebody right there who could say, you, you know what, you, you can do this. You have my permission to do this. And uh, Belichick was one of those guys. Everson, you arrived in the NFL as a cornerback 13 seasons later. You retired as a cornerback. Ronnie Lott, Rod Woodson, Neas Williams, Charles Woodson all moved inside to safety later in their careers. How much pride do you take in the fact that all 13 of your seasons were spent at corner and all 57 interceptions came in corner? You know, I, I have to say I, I was so stubborn. You know, I was the, the uh, old-school stubborn cornerback. You know, the, the guys like Lim Barney and Mel Blunt, those guys. Hey, when, if you talk about putting me at safety, you might as well send me to the boot factory. You know, <laughs> that's just the way we, that's the way we always looked at it. I can still cover these little old punk wide receivers all day long. I don't care how old I get. I don't care how bad my knees are. I don't care how my, bad my back is. So it was just the refusal, just by philosophy, for if, if, as a corner. I I am a true corner. Never really wanted to go back to safety at all. Belichick was extremely instrumental in using me uh, in different ways, which really helped uh, me helped our defense itself uh, become one of the you know one of the better defenses of, to me of all time in regards to that Giants uh, uh, defense. And it was because of my, as I said, that to stay at cornerback, that just, uh, I guess, hopefully foolish pride, you know, that allowed me to just stay there and, and have that same mentality. Because with me, it was never about physical ability in playing cornerback. I never looked at it as what I was physically able to do. So, so when you look at it from a mental standpoint, I was always mentally sharp, and that the, the ability to anticipate a route, the ability to the ability to read a route, you know, that's going to always be with me. So there was no need to move me because I could always make those plays. That at least that's the way I felt. Evers Walls, thanks for the time. Best of luck getting to the finals, and we hope, really hope, we see you in Minneapolis. All right, he's sitting right next to you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Everson. My dad, Fred, my dad Prescott, that's my guy. We're going to blame him. We're going to blame him. That was Hall of Fame semifinalist Everson Walls up next. It's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, listen closely, guys. You hear that? That's the two-minute we're going to the two-minute drill, and it's a pre-Christmas drill. So get the reindeer hitch, guys, because we're going to fly. Here we go. The NFL is producing its own holiday movies this December. So who stars in How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Bill Belichick. He has a way of stealing Christmas every year from the 31 other teams. Jerry Jones. He tried to steal from Roger Goodell, but he ended up in Whoville. <laughs> and what about Elf? The Jacksonville Jaguars, who, like Elf, refuse to believe they don't belong. If I remember right, Elf was an orphan. That would make him the Chargers. <laughs> and how about It's a Wonderful Life? J.J. Watt, ask yourself, what would the city of Houston be without him? Tom Brady. Who's got a better life than him, Clark? Good question. Roger Goodell has a new contract, so why doesn't he have a free plane? 
Who would you trust to fly it? Doesn't need a free plane. He's got a magic carpet now, and he can fly wherever he wants. Kind of like you, Ron. On the first day of Christmas, what does Jerry Jones give the commission? A tour of the Hall of Fame to show Roger Goodell his bust. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no. The finger. Same as every every other day. (laughs) True or false? Eli Manning is a giant next year. False. He's a Jaguar. False. He's anything but a giant and probably a Jaguar. True or false, Eli Manning is inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. True. We'll be long gone by the time he comes up, and the selection process will be based on numbers then. I say false. He'll have trouble being elected into the Manning Family Hall of Fame. New York's favorite son, Eli, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, or Clark Judge? Eddie Jockerman. Eddie Jockerman, excellent. Uh, actually, Clark, you live in Connecticut, so you're the nutmeg state's favorite son. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, what's under Carson Wentz's tree this Christmas? Nick Falls. <laughs> Worse than that, crutches, just like Tiny Tim Cratchit. <laughs> Which person or organization in or around the NFL tops Santa's naughty list? The officiating crews, they seem to think those sellout crowds are paying to see them throw yellow flags. Ernie Adams, the Patriots mystery man. <laughs> and who tops his nice list? The crop of young quarterbacks, Wentz, Goff, Watson, Prescott, even Trubisky. They give the NFL hope for the future. This year, J.J. Watts on the top of everyone's nice guy list. That's the end of the That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Coming up, it's Hall of Fame candidate Ty Law and Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. The next 60 minutes, we're going to hear from another Hall of Fame candidate, and that would be New England's Ty Law. As well as sit down with Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael, who has just been added to the Board of Selectors. I think we do for an appearance by Dr. Data, too, though I'm not really sure, Ron, what his attention is going to be on this week. Maybe he's scheduled for an interview in New York as the Giants next GM. I don't know. What do you, do you know, Ron? Huh? <laughs> I don't know. He, de- he never clears anything with me. Silence is holding. <laughs> well, what I do know is that former punt and kick returner Devin Hester this week officially announced his retirement in a posting on Twitter. And in that message, he said he hoped to see everyone in Canton, meaning when he reached the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, Dr. Data, I'm going to call you in here. Devin Hester has an NFL record 20 returns for touchdowns, including an NFL record 14 punt returns. What are his chances? About as good as those of White Shoes Johnson, Brian Mitchell, Mel Gray, Dante Hall, Rick Upchurch, and any other return specialist in the NFL record book, slightly north of zero. Only recently, as the selection committee started recognizing kickers, putting both Ray Guy and Morton Anderson in, and this committee has no eyes for return specialists yet. You see, Clark, when I heard that he said he'd, he'd be seeing us in Canton, I assumed he was going to move into Legends Landing. <laughs> you know, and all these other legends of the game. But, uh, uh, you know, but I tend to think the same thing as Goose said. Look, uh, when you look at Brian Mitchell, uh, he's first in punt return yards, first in kick return yards, first in combined uh, kick uh, return yards, first in total all-purpose yards. So how do you put the guy behind him in? And he scored. Uh, 13 return touchdowns himself, no slouch, uh, and frankly was a better overall player. So uh, I, I think Hesse was a dynamic guy, uh, but if you're going to put in one return guy, 
it's not him. And you got White Shoes, who was on the seventy fifth anniversary team. Right, exactly. He's the only guy not in on the seventy fifth anniversary team. Anybody that's ever uh, played a game that's been on that team is, is enshrined, except White Shoes. Right, and I and I, I agree with you, Goose. I mean, he to me, that's the guy who should go in first. You know, right. if you were the best guy in seventy five years, I think you've earned a place in Canton and not in Legends Landing. <laughs> Well, Devin Hester is officially on the clock. And you know what, guys? So are we. We're going to step away for a commercial. When we return, we're going to hear from Dr. Data. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Earlier in this program, we addressed the passing of former New England and Indianapolis coach Ron Meyer, who died last week at the age of 76. And then last weekend, we had a snow game. It was a blizzard, really, in Buffalo, which, of course, isn't exactly news. But where the Bills and the Colts were playing and where Colts sideline personnel ran onto the field to clear a spot for Adam Vinatieri's game-tying extra point. I think it was more like a 43-yard field goal. It was a game-tying extra point. They didn't stay out there long. They were run off the field by officials because what they were doing, Ron, was illegal. But I'll be honest with you. When I saw them, it made me think that the ghost of Ron Meyer was lurking somewhere in that stadium and probably, yeah, probably on the Indianapolis sidelines. Right. Well, you know, when when Ron directed the snowplow to do its thing, uh, it was not illegal. There was nothing on books. Uh, there, There was the next year. Uh, no snow piles allowed, but uh, knowing Ron the way I did, he would have been proud of their efforts, uh, but he would not thought that much of their ingenuity. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I could see him right now looking at those guys and saying, you know, oh, damn, now you got the plan for every eventuality because eventually every reality comes along. <laughs> and then he would tell them to simonize their watches, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, as you guys remember, we had Hall of Fame coach Don Shula on this program three years ago, and, and we asked him about that incident. And, Goose, I'll never forget what he told us, that when Uwe von Schaumann, who was their kicker, had a chance to make a game-time kick in the snowplow game, they wanted the driver. And, Ron, I think his name was Mark Henderson. Uh, yeah, anyway, right. he was on work release from prison or something, but anyway, right. uh, they, they wanted the driver who cleared the field for the Patriots to clear it for Uwe von Schaumann. And, of course, he said, uh, no thanks. Yeah, Don, Don should know what that is. It's called a home field advantage. Yeah, right. Uh, well, one other note about that home field advantage game. Uh, while Don Shula wasn't granted his request to have the game replayed, and he actually went to Pete Rosell and said, you know, I think this is unfair, and Rosell said, it's over, let's move on. The Dolphins did get their revenge, Ron, as you know, they beat New England in the playoffs, and that was in Miami where there was no need for Mark Henderson or a snowplow. But what I love most about the snowplow game was when Henderson, who, as I said, was on work release for, I think it was burglary, I think he was convicted of burglary, Um, he was interviewed years later about his role, and he said, what are they going to do? Throw me in jail? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe Ron Meyer wrote that script for him. I yeah, no, know. he was a funny guy. You know, they gave him a – Meyer gave him a game ball after the game. He did? Uh, yeah, yeah, he got the game ball. And, uh, uh, you know, Meyer always claimed it was Steve Grogan's idea, who was uh, yeah, uh, sure. one of their quarterbacks. And uh, uh, But it was Meyer himself who ran over sort of shouting and pointing to uh, uh, Mark to uh, 
you know, swerve to the left, which which he did. Um, and, you know, but it was a weird sort of game. I mean, the details of the game were very bizarre. The, the Patriots only threw the ball five times, and they rushed for 199 yards and passed for 13. And uh, uh, unwisely, David Woodley threw, uh, uh, I believe he threw 13 times, and there was two picks, mm-hmm. and he only passed for 76 yards. So uh, if Shula had been running the ball more, he wouldn't have to worry about the snowplow is what we say up here. Remember last year, Rod, when I was getting ready to vote, you told me the same thing. You said, swerve to the left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Swerve to the left. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of the snowplow game, Ty Law did not play in that game. But he did play for the New England Patriots. And he was part of a poll that we ran the past week on our website. And that website, of course, is talkoffamenetwork.com, in which we asked our readers which of the seven DBs among the Hall of Fame's class of 2018 semifinalists deserves to be in Canton. And drumroll, please, Goose. Their answer was? Leroy Butler of the Green Bay Packers. He was a first-team all-decade safety from the 1990s. Leroy received 27% of the vote to nose out Everson Walls at 22%. So you guys good with that? Ron, I I know you're not because you're set to present another DB, in fact, uh, if he makes it to the final 15, which he will, and that's Ty Law. I mean, clearly there was a case of ballot stuffing going on you know what which, is, which you know, we understand that how they are in green bay you know they have the face of nice midwestern people but in reality <laughs> they moon the opposing team when they leave <laughs> the right. parking lot <laughs> good thing they didn't moon us <laughs> exactly yeah, I, voted, I, I voted walls uh, he's the only cornerback ever to lead the nfl in interceptions three times and one of only two players to do it the other is safety ed reed who everyone has penciled in as a first ballot hall of famer in class of 2019 mm-hmm. You know, Walls waited 24 years for this one chance to be finally on the ballot. This is his last, best, and likely his only shot. Well, Goose, you know what's ironic about this poll is that the People's Choice Butler, he's probably not going to make the cut to 15. And, and not because he's not qualified. He is. All these guys are qualified. But because he could be, and in, in my mind, probably will be a victim of numbers. The same goes with uh, Steve Outwater. I mean, we have four safeties and three cornerbacks in this pool and you're not taking four safeties to the final i mean i think brian dawkins and john lynch make it's not exactly going out on a limb and they were top 10 finalists last year but i don't think butler and atwater do well clark that of course would be your opinion that butler doesn't make the cut i know he made my cut to 15 whoa well (laughs) goodness he has a horse in the race uh you know, I see where you're coming from, Clark. Look, on some of these, uh, there has to be, because uh, I've, I've heard it in the past, uh, a number of voters sitting there saying, uh, why didn't the people who knew Everson Walls best right. bring him forward? You know, bring, right. bring him forward. Now, all of a sudden, the people who know him least are going to put him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, I'm not saying I buy into that one way or the other, but I'm sure that th- that's something that a player like him or Jacoby or, or anybody who's near the end, uh, Roger Worley, as you'll recall, yeah, got in, right. I believe, in his last year of eligibility. Uh, and there weren't that many guys in the room. Goose and I were two of them. Uh, you were there that year, I believe, Clark, were you not? Uh, you know, we, we had seen him, but probably half the voters hadn't. Yeah, And I know I- some of them had that sort of thought in their mind, like, uh, I'm going to put in a vote for a guy I, you know, when people who actually knew him didn't. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. a tough hurdle to overcome for anybody in that circumstance. Well, I, I, I would just like to see Wallace discussed. And I think that's what that's, sure. this is all about. I'd like to see him get to the final 15. Okay, that tells us there's a Hall of Famer already in the house. And that's our Rick Coslin. Yeah, a.k.a. Dr. Data, Canton, class of 2004. 
You can look it up. You'll see it on the wall there. It's a plaque on the wall in the Hall of Fame. True story. This is where he tells us what's on his mind. So, Goose, let her rip. Well, if the New York Giants were hoping for an emotional boost by jettisoning Ben McAdoo as head coach last week and replacing him with Steve Spagnolo, that gambit failed, and it usually does. If the short term is your sights, interim coaches have been a colossal failure in the NFL. But it's the long play. If that's your plan, you have a chance. But I doubt Steve Spagnuolo was a long play for this franchise. His Giants were crushed by the Cowboys 30-10 to in his first game as head coach. So much for that emotional boost. But there have been 87 interim coaches since 1960, and only 28 of them managed to win those emotionally charged debut games. Only 16 of those coaches managed to win more games than they lost during their interim status. So much for the short play. But the long play, now that's something that can make an in-season coaching change a success. Don Coriel got his career with the Chargers started with an interim gig in 1978. He's now on the ballot for the class of 2018 as a Hall of Fame coach. Marvin Levy also got his chance with the Buffalo Bills as an interim hire. He wound up coaching the Bills to four Super Bowls and earning a bust in Canton. Marty Schottenheimer got his start as an interim coach. He went on to take three teams to conference championship games and win 200 games, seventh most in NFL history. Jeff Fisher also got his start as an interim coach. He would later take that same franchise, the Tennessee Titans, to a Super Bowl. Ron's friend Art Shell got his start as an interim coach. And of the current class of NFL head coaches, Jason Garrett, Todd Bowles, Anthony Lynn, and Mike Malarkley all have backgrounds as interim hires. When you fire a coach in season, it helps to have a plan. I'm guessing the Giants don't. Change for the sake of change is rarely a logical solution. So, Goose, I'm wondering, are you theorizing that Jason Garrett and Todd Bowles are on their way to to, to at least being discussed at Canton, like Don Coriel, who shows up every year, or the great Marv Levy? Ron, for every Marv Levy, there's a Chuck Studley. For every Don Coriel, there's a Tom Bettis. <laughs> My brother Mar- played for Chuck Studley, so take it easy. Forever <laughs> Marty Schottenheimer, there's a Pat Pepler. The failures far outweigh the successes, especially if the franchise lacks a plan for succession. And I think you can count the Giants in that group. Hey, Goose Quick, uh, forget the plan. Does it help to have a franchise quarterback? I mean, Corey Allen Fouts, Levy had a Hall of Famer, Fisher had Steve McNair. Huh? How about a franchise quarterback? The, the absence of a quarterback has turned a lot of coaches into interim hires. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right about so. that. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to break, guys. But when we return, we're going to hear from the newest Hall of Fame voter. That would be Larry Michael, the voice of the Washington Redskins. And you're going to want to hear this. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest is one of the newest members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Board of Selectors and one of its most topical. Larry Michael takes over for David Elfin as Washington's representative, a move that didn't sit so well with former voter and Washington Post columnist Len Shapiro, who questioned the choice on the grounds that Larry not only is Washington's play-by-play announcer, but the team's chief content officer and senior VP as well. Larry, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to the Board of Selectors. My honor and privilege to be part of a select group, and uh, very much looking forward to it, guys. Well, I mentioned Len's column. Um, While well, Lenny congratulated you on your experience, and I know you've read the column and, and your yeah. knowledge of the game, he also questioned the choice because he said essentially that you're too high up 
the chain of command not to have an unbiased view and that because you have owner Daniel Snyder's ear, what is said in that room can be shared outside of it and may just may compromise selectors candor, if not their objectivity. Can you address Len's concerns for us? Absolutely, and, and I have to say this, uh, just in all honesty and just you know full disclosure, that when I was uh, when I was at a student at the University of Maryland, you know, tens of years ago, uh, one of my big thrills in journalism school was when Len Shapiro came to give uh, give a speech to our class. And so, after getting out of college and going through my career, I, I'd always considered uh, Len a, a good man and a good writer. And I was taken back by his comments, and you know, I called Len. Uh, he really didn't want to talk to me, which I, th- I thought was extremely unfair because he hadn't yeah. tried to talk to me prior to writing that article. Right. And what bothered me the most is uh, his sense and the way he had written it that I would somehow uh, not be an honest representative of myself and of the selection committee, which I'm so honored to be a part of. I've spent my whole life in the broadcasting business. Uh, you know, this is not my first job with the Washington Redskins. Uh, I had a whole lot of jobs prior to this. In fact, Ron might not remember uh, a TV show show we did, uh, a boxing show we did that we probably would like to forget about 25 years ago. <laughs> I do uh, remember that, yeah. yeah we, were good at, that, we were good. We were better than the fighters, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, we were. It was kind of an oddball show, but I, I, I had a chance to work with Ron. So, you know, I, all I can say is that, you know, I've been involved with the National Football League since the 80s when I, I got a job at a place called Mutual Radio. And then I worked up the ladder there, and the gentleman at the NFL really helped me a lot, a guy by the name of Val Pinchbeck, sure. Uh, who, uh, who, who really helped me. He showed me the ropes, and I had the opportunity for 20 years to work with guys. One of my main partners when I was at Westwood One was a guy by the name of Jack Ham. Of course, we know Jack Ham. And work with James Lofton, work with a guy by the name of Jack Snow, God rest his soul, and and a whole slew of other great football players. And I don't think I I would have been a selection for the committee if I didn't have that background. Now, the fact that I work with the Redskins now and what was represented to me when they called me and asked me to be part of it, that, you know, the landscape, the media landscape is changing. And I got three of the greatest writers of all time here on a podcast or it's a whatever it is, radio show. And and who could have thought that was possible 10 years ago? That's true. So sure. the whole landscape has changed. I'm just proud to be part of it. Uh, I, I would have liked to have had a better conversation with Len Shapiro because I do respect him as a writer for many, many years. Uh, but he sounded angry. Didn't end good. So I have to move on. And what's written has been written. And I can assure you I will be nothing but forthcoming and honest. And, in fact, here in the building at Redskins Park, uh, no one has really said anything to me other than congratulations. So, you know, I got a job to do. The way I see it, I got a job to do, and I'm one of 48. So it's not like I got more than one vote. I'll do the best I can, regardless of what Len Shapiro wrote. Well, you may be going to 48, but you're on a bit of a hot seat because this is Joe Jacoby's final year on the ballot as a modern era candidate. How much of a sense of urgency do you have in the preparation and presentation of his candidacy? Uh, I don't think I could be more urgent, uh, you know, and being a being a guy that's followed football and obviously followed this franchise and taking a look at the uh, numbers they put up, and, you know, get, and having a lot of spec- respect for Joe Gibbs and what he did here. And, and my first year here was Joe's first year here for his second go-round. So, you know, I've gotten to be pretty close to Coach Gibbs and uh, the the job he did and, and the numbers speak for themselves. And I think it's uh, it's interesting that the, uh, the room, the selection committee is – has found it uh, to have Joe be a semifinalist now about eight times, and 
and and hopefully, and we'll see you know, whether he'll be a finalist again. So I think the selectors obviously know what Joe did on the football field and know what he meant to the football team as part of the Hogs. And the stats are pretty apparent. I'm trying to dig into the stats a little bit more because of the urgency with this being his last chance. I mean, it's his last chance or he's going to go to the end of the line of the seniors, uh, which means that's going to be a real long haul for him. So, you know, obviously, you know, his, his record speaks for itself. The fact that he's been discussed in the room uh, more than once, uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that shows that the, the folks in the room uh, respect him as a football player. And this being his final go-around, I think there is an added sense of urgency. And, you know, some of the things uh, I'm trying to reach out to, you know, some of the people that played against him and trying to talk to them and see what makes him, what made him a great player, what their thoughts of him really are. And uh, that's part of my process prior to uh, obviously getting to the point where we have a chance, hopefully have a chance to present him. How do you uh, how do you sort of view your your role now as a uh, as one of the voters, and how much time do you think you'll spend uh, going over? Uh, you know, not only Joe, but obviously there's going to be uh, 14 other candidates, if not more, uh, that you're going to have to. Uh, make decisions about uh, almost gives me chills to think I'm part of that group. So I, I'm I'm slightly in awe. I'm sure that'll go away quickly once the job begins. And I think between now and then, I mean, I'm just going to do everything I can. I I can't I can't really tell you guys. You know, between you know getting ready for a weekly football game, which I have to do, and and getting up to speed on the opponents, and with all the injuries around the league, it's a constant churn of a roster. Uh, but I'm carving out time each week. You know, to go over and try to reach out to you know other Hall of Famers, maybe players who played against Joe, and try to get some quotes, try to get some unusual stats. And I, I did find that, you know, I got a stat the other day that Joe Jacoby, forty uh, percent of his games w- were played against Hall of Famers, which I thought was a very unique stat. I don't think a lot of people realize the competition he played against and how well he did against that competition. So I mean, that's the kind of stuff I got to get ready for. But you know, I, I can't be, I can't lie to you. I think I might be a little nervous that first go around. <laughs> We're speaking with Hall of Fame voter. That'd be rookie Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael, the voice That's of the right. Washington Redskins on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And Larry, uh, Goose mentioned Joe Jacoby. He's not the only Redskin up for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We also have Bobby Bethard, of course, the former GM of the Redskins. Um, Goose and I are on the Contributor Committee, and Bobby came out of the Contributor Committee. He's the uh, candidate this year. Do you know Bobby? I do know Bobby. I mean, I can't say I knew Bobby back in the day, but over the last five years, uh, I've gotten a chance to meet Bobby. Bobby was put into the team's ring of fame last year, uh, way overdue. And he is such a fantastic guy. I've had dinner with him several times over the last five years, and his wife and his family, and his grandson was there one night when we had dinner. And he's doing pretty good for himself right now. So, And, you know, he... uh, he really remembers these days with the Redskins. Of course, this wasn't his only stop along the way. Oh, sure. Uh, but but this is a place where he, he calls home, and he, he really, you know, again, most people who played for the team back in those days remember RFK Stadium fondly and remember the type of passion the fans had for the team. And I think that helped the organization at the time uh, quite a bit because they knew the fans were behind him so strongly. And, and Bobby, you know, he'd always find that little gem, and, you know, he had to work for Mr. Cook, which was a unique situation in itself. And, uh, you know, he was just a great talent evaluator, just a fantastic talent evaluator. And 
uh, he's got some great stories. And, you know, Bobby, they used to tell me Bobby was a big surfer and all this, you know, he was an outdoors guy and he was, you know, ran marathons and all this. He's he's up in age a little bit, but he's still pretty sharp. Yep. And when you get him reminiscing about the old days, it, it just, you can't help but just sit there and listen uh, because it starts flowing out of him. And I think he's, uh, he's a tremendous credit to pro football. And, you know, I think that it's great to have him in the position he's in now. And uh, we'll see if he if he passes through. But I think his his record speaks for itself. And you're not going to find a better guy than Bobby Beathard, too. So um, my thoughts on it, I can't say enough good things about him, really. Larry, you said that uh, Bobby working with Jack Hancock was a unique situation. Is working with yes. Dan Snyder a unique situation? Well, you know what? I was hired. I had been at, at Westwood One and Mutual Radio for about 20 years. And I had done NFL, Notre Dame football, did a lot of boxing, did the Olympics and a lot of pro golf and had a real real diverse career and i was working in the market here doing some post and pregame shows and uh dan snyder invited me to talk to me about a job opportunity um in april of 2005 and joe gibbs was there and Everything that was mentioned in that meeting has really come true for me in terms of what resources they've given us. We started a TV department. We've got all kinds of web content, It's and it really has grown to the point where you cannot satisfy the fans. You cannot put out enough good content to satisfy the fans. You know, audio, video, web, social, mobile, all this stuff. And he's just supported me 100% now. You know, If he asks you to do something, well, he expects it to get it done. And uh, you know, I've had some bosses in the past that were similar to that, and that's, to me, a key of a successful businessman who knows what he wants and you know, hires people who can get it done for him. So I've had, I've had a great time working here. He's treated me fantastic. He's treated my family outstanding. And, and the one thing that, that we haven't seen is a Super Bowl here. So I know that sticks in his craw. And, you know, there's three trophies here in the trophy case, and there will not be one added this year. So... You know, it's a it's a it's a yearly ritual of us trying to get up and running. And I know he supports the, the organization. I mean, obviously he owns the organization, but every year there seems to be a, a different hurdle you need to overcome. And this year it's been injuries. And again, he's been very supportive. But pro football's a, a winning business. You have to win. So you know, I've had a chance to work with some different folks here along the way. Uh, time spent with Mike Shanahan was extremely enjoyable. Well, a very smart guy. Taught me a lot about football. Larry, we've got to go, but thanks for the time. See you in Minneapolis, and we're looking forward to it. And congratulations on joining the board. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to working with you guys, and I really appreciate you having me on. Sure, Larry. Larry, nice. piece of advice. Stay close to Goose. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'll be in his back pocket. Don't worry. There you go. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, fellas. That was Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael, the voice of the Washington Redskins. Up next is former cornerback and now Hall of Fame candidate, Di Law. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. One year after former cornerback and three-time Super Bowl champion Ty Law reached the final 10 for the Pro Football of Fame, he's back as one of its 27 semifinals for the class of 2018. Now, about 90% of players who reach the final 10 are elected to the Hall. Ron's told you that. But this year, Ty faces stiff competition from a field of defensive backs that includes cornerbacks Everson Walls and Ronnie Barber. And safety is Leroy Butler, Brian Dawkins, John Lynch, and Steve Atwater. That's the bad news. The good, if and when he gets there, he has our own Ron Borges arguing his case. So, Ty, <laughs> thanks for joining us again. 
Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Enjoy being on the show. Are you more nervous uh, this year, Ty, than the first uh, few years you were a Hall of Fame candidate? Does the anticipation get worse as the years go by, or does it get? Or do you get used to it? Uh, I guess you, you, you kind of get used to it as your name uh, comes up. Uh, I was a first-time finalist last year, um, and, you know, I, I didn't expect much. I mean, I was just holding on to the fact that I – that I'm being mentioned and I'm in this type of conversation. So I was more blown away about that. You know, I try not to get too uh, caught up in the details. And I was like, I got the great Ron Borges, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, speaking my case for me, you know what I mean, to try to prove to the other uh, voters that uh, I'm worthy of being in that type of club, man. So I just try to take it in stride, man. And, but it is a little nerve-wracking when everyone says, this is your year, this is your year. But I know the reality of how hard it is to get there. So – I'm happy, uh, you know, for now and at the time was just being in that conversation. But it's something I definitely want. I definitely want uh, bad because I worked hard and that was the ultimate goal is to not only uh, win championships but to one day be immortalized in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ty, have you scouted the field of candidates as you might an opponent and kind of ranked the field? Uh, no, I, I didn't do that because I think anyone that's, being mentioned uh, of such an honor uh, deserves to be there. And uh, I, I will – I say I'm guilty of uh, looking up the stats before uh, of some of the Hall of Famers, especially when I was playing. Uh, I did it more so now that I'm actually in the conversation. You know, I looked up uh, um, the, the Mike Haynes, uh, the Emmett Thomas, the cornerbacks, or the Dale Greens, the guys that were in the Hall of Fame. And I was like, you know, you always want to – Match up to not only who you're playing against from a week to week basis when you're when you're playing, but you always want to compare yourself. Well, at least I did to the great ones that you know eventually wound up in the Hall of Fame. So you know I was more so chasing those guys, you know, in, a, in the back of my mind than actually uh, chasing the guys that I was playing with and against. We're speaking to Hall of Fame candidate Ty Law on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com and on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. And, Ty, we had Everson Walls on in the first hour, and, and this is his final year of eligibility as a modern-era candidate for the Hall. Yet this is the first time, the first time he's been a semifinalist, and it's his 20th year, despite leading the NFL in interceptions three times. You surprised? I, I know all about Everson. I know all about him. Go ahead. <laughs> you surprised? Uh, I'm, I'm very surprised because uh, I've, I've known Everson – uh, since my days in high school when I was, uh, you know, spending my summers down there in Dallas. And, you know, he was always one of the guys that I did look up to because he picked off so many balls. But I really never thought he got the recognition or the admiration of some of the other great cornerbacks, you know, like the uh, Deion Sanders of the world and things like that for him to lead the league that many times, you know. And uh, I was always, you know, used to talk – you know, trash to Everson, you know, I'm going to end up getting more interceptions than you, you know, throughout my whole career. Like I said, he's known me uh, since I was a high school kid. And, um, you know, I came up short. He, and I think it was uh, it was last year, you know, I ran into him, and he, re- he he reminded me about that. You know, he asked me how many I got. He was like 
Told you you weren't going to catch me. You <laughs> <laughs> got 57. I said, well, how many you got in the playoffs? How many touchdowns you got? So that's how I overtook him. You know, man, I had to bring up the playoffs and the touchdowns. I said, you ain't do nothing with the ball when you got it. <laughs> <laughs> now, la- last year, Ty, as you know, your, your, your old pal Tom Brady wrote a letter of support for uh, Miami pass rusher uh, uh, Jason Taylor. And I wonder, yeah. were you surprised? Did it bother you since I believe you're the guy who sold him his first house and you did it on the cheap? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I I meant to uh, bust him up about that a little bit. But, you know, I felt a little way. I'm sitting there like, you know what? I said, damn, Tom, I know he sat you a bunch of times, but <laughs> I, I helped you a little bit, you know, uh, you know, in practice, you know, picked him off a couple times, you know, to get your swag right. So uh, I thought, you know, I helped him out a little bit. But you know what? He has a great respect for uh, Jason Taylor. You know, I know he does, uh, and I don't know if he thought it may have been a little cliche to write about your own teammate. I don't know what what, what it was, what his motivation was. But when I first heard about it, I, I was kind of taken back a little bit. I like you got a little bit of ink, more ink in that pen, don't you? <laughs> you, know what I mean? but you know what? Me and Tom are, are, are great from there. I haven't. Brought it up to him uh, uh, just yet, but you know I'm going to bust his balls a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> he should. Hey, hey Ty, of, of the four safeties that are on the, the ballot, does one of them stick out to you? Um, well, I, I definitely. Um, Brian Dawkins, you know, because I, I did, you know, play with uh, Brian, so I got, you know, to experience the way he played, you know, up close and personal, the way he transformed from being – just a regular guy, and to, uh, when he puts on his pads, he really turns into the Wolverine, man. It, it was hilarious when I first got up there, uh, to, you know, to see all the inside of his locker. He had all the Wolverine um, <laughs> little dolls. I mean, he had two lockers, and it was all wolverine out. Like, I'm like, damn, I thought I was the one who went to Michigan. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but yeah, he had the same decked out, but he turns into a different animal when he's out there on the field. I mean, he's like, he's... 100% focused on the task at hand, and I always admired that about uh, Brian Dawkins. Um, Steve Atwater, uh, playing with him in the Pro Bowls, and, um, and just to see in the – it's one play that always sticks out is when he ran up on Christian Okoye. And when yeah. you look at Steve, yeah. he's a tall guy. He's, he's well put together, but he's not Christian Okoye big. <laughs> and for him to go out there and lay the type of hit out there on him and being known – for such a devastating hitter, um, he was also somebody that you know I've always admired and looked up to. Even though I knew I was never going to run up on people like he does. <laughs> <laughs> the way you describe Brian Dawkins sounds like he should be a Marvel comic book hero, Wolverine. <laughs> oh, it, it is. I mean, like I said, and it's really like he gets in the full character. The, to be honest with you, that's what was you know funny. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like wow, this, this guy he 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 turns it on. But when the game is over, he turns it off, and it's like there's nothing I've, I've, I've ever seen before. You know what I mean? And the intensity that he plays with, he, he reminds me of uh, someone like Rodney Harrison. You know, Rodney Harrison is one of the only other people that, that I've seen prior to Brian to take that type of intensity, you know, play in, play out, game in, game out. He will fight every single game if he had to, you know what I mean? And he just takes such an intensity that, you know, you can't teach. And, and Brian had that same characteristic. Hey, Ty, um, Goose asked you about safeties. I want to ask you about mm-hmm. cornerback. Mm-hmm. What 
what or who, in your mind, defines a Hall of Fame cornerback? Um, I would say, first of all, can, can you cover one-on-one? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that is something that's like a lost art nowadays that you don't have very many people that can actually go out there and cover one-on-one and they convert to defense to let you have that. You know, they, they, you know, you can give the defense so much more freedom to do certain things when you have someone out there that can actually take away your uh, top opponent. I think uh, when given the opportunity, can you make the play? And there's a lot of PBU artists out there, you know, that can knock the ball down. But how many guys can out can catch it in a critical time and then do something with it after you catch it? And I think third, you would have to make an impact on good football teams, championship football teams, and your defense and defensive coordinator, head coach has the trust in you to go out there and be that guy. And if you were able to be successful in those type of things and really bring a championship and lock down the best guy with no help, I think that's the mark of a Hall of Fame quarter, quarter, cornerback, and you got to have at least fifty. You know, I think that's the that's the minimum, you know, standard uh, today. Is you know, did you get the big five zero when it came to the uh, interceptions? Hmm. You know, you you mentioned the uh, the big games and, and performing in the big games, and certainly you did that as well as anybody. Uh, were you different in those games than the other games, or were you successful because you weren't different in those games than the other games? Well, I've always reveled to play in the big moment. You know, I think that is the real mark of a, a, a champion and a competitor. You want to play in those moments. Uh, I, I think you talk to a lot of uh, players, they'll tell you that, some guys just don't want to play on the big stage. They don't like to play on Monday night. And all that. I'm like, why not? You know, more people watching. If there's anything, it was easier for me to get up for those type of games, you know, when they really meant something. Sometimes, you know, than others. You know what I mean? It's like, how could you not? Even though you try to take the same approach, you know, every game, but when those type of games come, when you're playing against your rivals like the Pittsburgh Steelers or when you're going against that, you know, trash-talking receiver like Keyshawn Johnson, you've got to be able to get up. If you don't play well against Marvin Harrison, you're going to be on the wrong end of the ESPN highlights every night. So <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. I couldn't let that happen. So, you know, it was different motivating factors. But when you had a challenge and then you had all eyes on you and you're the only game in town, you know, that's something that, you know, I live for. I mean, I enjoy it. I, I didn't. I, I couldn't run away from it. I was actually. Uh, I'm actually drawn to it more. I'm addicted to that. So, Ty, who is the best player ever to come out of Alakepa? Yourself, Mike Ditka, or Tony Dorsett? <laughs> well, well, I gotta say, you know, first uh, Ditka, then Dorsett, and. The rest is yet to be determined because they're already in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I think Dick got the Dick, the Dick or Dorsey get there first. Dick got there first, obviously, right? Yep. So, yep. so he's one. Um, Tony Dorsey is two, 
And, you know, hopefully one day I can make it three because I think uh, Darrell Reeves is going to be coming not far behind. So, you know, hopefully one day I can beat him to the punch. Congratulations, Ty. You just made the Thanks. Pro Football Hall of Fame for diplomacy. <laughs> That's right. That was really good. <laughs> hey, was- hey, I, I want to be in that conversation because, like I said, when I was talking about Everson Walls, guys, I spent my summers in Dallas ever since I was ninth grade on to, like, my sophomore year in college. I spent it down there with, you know, my Uncle Tony Dorsett. So, you know, I've been chasing him for a long time. So to finally, you know, be in a conversation with him outside of being compared when we was, you know, kids, you'll be the next Tony Dorsett. I always wanted to be the first tie law, but to, you know, had the opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame with him. That's uh, that's some trash. I get to talk to him a little bit because he kills me all the time, you know, about how you got to be a bad boy. You got to raise some hell. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I used to just stare at his uh, bus and his um, and his uh, Heisman Trophy, you know, in his house. So, you know, he used to give it to me all the time. So I need some get back, guys. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. okay. Hey, Ty, thanks so much for the time, and we'll see you in Minneapolis. <laughs> okay, thank you, man. Hopefully. Thanks, Ty. Appreciate it. All right. Bye, that was Hall of Fame candidate Ty Lobb. Next, two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Some kids hear sleigh bells this time of year, but us, we get this. That means we're in a rush to get our two-minute shopping done. So, guys, let's get to it. So what should Ron give Tom Brady, the guy who has everything, for Christmas? His UMass Lowell hockey tickets for the Boston College game January 26th. (laughs) An autographed and fully inflated football so he'll know what it feels like. And what should Goose give Jerry Jones, the owner who has everything? A bit of advice. That gold jacket is a clothing accessory, not a shield. Ooh, very good. I would say a large bill for shepherding his sorry buttocks into the Hall of Fame. What's wrong with Derek Carr? Amari Cooper has pulled a Harry Houdini disappearing act. I would say the fat guy's in front of him. The Crown is A, a Netflix biopic of Queen Elizabeth, B, an NFL Network biopic of Roger Goodell, or C, a Talk of Fame Network biopic of Dr. Data. D, the NFL study linking helmets with concussions. E, the hoodie of Bill Belichick. (laughs) What should the Chargers give their San Diego fans for the holidays? A Super Bowl parade through Old Town, something those fans waited 50 years for. Free playoff tickets. They owe them. And what should those fans give the Bolts? Concrete plans for a new stadium and an expansion team to play there. <laughs> or, better than that, lifetime pass to the over-the-line tournament. Oh, I like that. Why are the fights this Christmas season? Uh, Scrooge has become the patron saint of the NFL. Like the song says, Clark, tis the season to be hostile. <laughs> Pennsylvania fans want a Pittsburgh Eagles Super Bowl for Christmas. What are their chances? Just a tad stronger than an all-LA Super Bowl of the Rams and Chargers. I would say not too good with Carson Wentz in traction. When does Christmas come to Browns fans? It already arrived with the hiring of John Dorsey as GM. He knows what a player looks like. December 5th, same as everybody else, because there's no games for them to lose that day. That's the end of the game. <laughs> we want to thank Ty Law, Everson, Walls, Craig Kelly, and Larry Michael for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. 
Otherwise, look for us next week on this station at this time. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. Hi, this is Daryl Johnson of the Dallas Cowboys, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.